And a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pierce. Thank you so much for joining me. Coming up in today's broadcast, we take a look at the 2016th health budget vote. And then Father Mike Deeb OP is also back with more updates from the UN. But first, we bring you a very brief and quick update with regards to news that made headlines in Africa and beyond today. So do stay tuned. Listen to Radio Veritas, 576 AM, for a change. And in your headlines this Wednesday evening, Pope reflects on parable of prodigal son and tragic stories of suicide and death due to hunger in South Sudan. Good evening once again, I'm Sheila Pirish. Continuing his series on Wednesday Catechesis on Mercy, Pope Francis devoted his May 11 general audience to the parable of the prodigal son. Philippa Hitchin reports. Pope Francis began his reflections at the moment the prodigal son returns home, asking forgiveness for what he has done and telling his father, I no longer deserve to be called your son. But on the contrary, he continued, the only thing that matters to the father is that his son has returned home safe and sound. Thus he runs out to embrace him, restores his dignity by giving him clothes, sandals and a ring on his finger and calls for a feast to celebrate his return. said the father's tenderness and mercy overflows and in the same way we know that even in the most difficult moments of our lives God waits for us and longs to embrace us as his children. Jesus' words, he went on, can encourage parents who worry about their children becoming alienated or tempted by all kinds of danger. They can help priests and catechists who wonder if their work is all in vain. They can even help those in prison or those who've made mistakes and are unable to see any future for themselves. The boat went on to explain how this parable talks about both the prodigal son and his older brother, who also needs to learn to accept the father's mercy. Though he has remained at home with his father, his words display no tenderness or thought for anyone but himself. How sad for the father, the Pope exclaimed, with one son who went away and the other who was never really close to him. Both the younger son who is expecting to be punished and the older son who expects a reward for his good behaviour are not acting according to God's love, which transcends both reward and punishment, the Pope said. The two brothers do not speak to each other. They live different lives, but neither of them lives according to the logic of our Lord. Their logic is overturned by the words of the father. Let us celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. The greatest joy for the father, the Pope stressed, is to see his two sons reunited and recognizing each other as brothers. Pope Francis noted that this parable ends without our knowing how the older brother responds to the father's invitation to celebrate his brother's return. Jesus is challenging each one of us, he said, to think about how we respond to God's invitation, to open our hearts to his reconciling love and to become merciful like the Father. I'm Philippa Hitchin.
Apostolic Nuncio to Malawi and Zambia, Archbishop Julio Murat, has commended the Catholic Diocese for taking an active role in complementing government in its various development programs. Murat said the Church has taken an important step of carrying out different development initiatives in the area of education, agriculture and health, among others. He also advised Catholic workers, either in hospital or education, to be useful to the people they serve, considering that their responsibility was not only to help in spirituality, but also to improve the welfare of people by adhering to human values. And finally, tragic stories are emerging of deaths caused by rising hunger in the South Sudanese state of eastern Equatoria. In one instance, a mother left her two children in order to try and sell firewood for food, only to return and find them both dead. Later, she hung herself. Children have also died after falling from fruit trees in search of food. The world's youngest country has been wrecked by several years of brutal civil war as well as poor harvests, and nearly three million people are in urgent need of food assistance. Adong Flora Ajok is a community liaison assistant with the UN mission in that country. Around 5,000 people left. That was in two weeks' time they went to Uganda due to the hunger that's happening right now. That was two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. And if you go to the market right now, you find their things, but to buy them is a problem. And also the prices are also expensive. And getting food is a problem. But otherwise, people have started going to the garden to cultivate, but the hunger is still there. Yes, uh, the governor was also appealing to humanitarian assistance. And uh, like you mentioned, he said even uh, the wild fruits, including the yams in the bushes, are almost getting over. So any response so far from the humanitarian organization or to come in and support these people who are fleeing? Not really. According to the acting director, he said there's no any other humanitarian organization that has come to help them, but they are still lobbying. Any other humanitarian organization that would like to help them, they are really waiting for it because people are, and other people even, let me say, there was a kind, there's a woman who went, he says the firewood and was going to sell them, but this, no one bought the firewood. Coming back, she got her children, died. the two children died. She also hung herself. That was due to hunger. And there are also some cases. These young kids are going and they are climbing the mango tree. Others are falling. There was a boy who died. And others are falling that are sustaining injuries in the hospital due to the hunger. Because there is no any other humanitarian organization that has come to assist them. You mentioned it is now rain season. Are people planning, those who have not left the state to go to the neighboring country, are they planning to cultivate? Oh, yeah, well... They are planning to cultivate, but hunger will not allow you to cultivate because you not have energy. To yeah. But otherwise, others are preparing to cultivate. And also, Sunny Martin, due to the hunger that's happening, the performance of children this time is poor. At school. There's also decrease, yeah, in school. Poor and there's decrease in the number of pupils, both students and pupils, because they are leaving the country due to hunger. Yes, uh, Flora, somebody would, somebody would be wondering what would, might have caused this hunger in the state. Was it due to poor rainfall or crop failure? What's the reason? Any explanation from the Relief and Rehabilitation Commission, chairperson or acting director? Oh, yeah, even the governor explained. He said there is chronic food shortage that was caused by the poor harvest from last year due to the 
inadequate rainfall. And also they said the fall down of South Sudanese pound against the dollar also contributed to it. So uh, now that at least there are changes or development in the political scenario happening right here in Juba where we have the new government, how are people reacting to this political development? Well, according to what is happening, people are hoping, there's that hope that maybe things might change. There's really hope. Of course, they were saying if at all peace is going to be there, there's hope that maybe the hunger will be, I mean, they want the government maybe to do something at least to help them at the ground here, to bring food assistance to them and also maybe to reduce the dollar prices that will help them afford things in the market. And uh, finally, Flora, before uh, we let you go, do we have enough basic food commodities in the market, even if they're expensive? Are people affording to buy them? Not really. There are few, not all that much, but at least there's something little that people can get. But in one week time, people will go without food. And that was a brief look at some of the stories that made headlines in the church in Africa today. You're still listening to The Catholic View, and I'm Shayla Pirsch. Thank you so much for being here with me once again. Coming up next, we bring you our feature entitled The Church and the UN with Father Mike Deeb O.P. Welcome back to our feature, The Church and the UN, with Father Mike Dib OP. Father Mike Dib is the permanent delegate of the Dominican Order to the United Nations and the Order's General Promoter of Justice and Peace. In the second part of the interview, Father Mike Dib continues to talk about some of the major highlights that took place during the month of April at the UN. I was in New York in April and I attended the Commission on Population and Development. It uh, wasn't a very exciting commission in the sense that they were focusing mainly just on statistics and on how to register people to really be clear on that we get proper statistics before we can talk about development. The most interesting thing that I discovered there was a, a side event organized by some Catholic groups and the Holy See as well on the whole issue of migration when we're talking about population because many migrants are not included in the population figures that um, are registered everywhere. And of course, migrants form a huge proportion of the world's population. They, they were giving statistics of, um, of, you know, I've forgotten the precise figure, but it's about four, uh, four, Four million, more than four million people are migrants around the world, and I think that often these people are not uh, are not regarded in statistics and people with rights, etc. So there's a big challenge about how to incorporate them into registration and to to give them accord them the rights that they they want or that they need. So that is one issue. The other big issue, which is you know, it involved the UN at a certain level, but it was uh, more organized by the American government, Obama. It was a nuclear security summit that was held in in, uh, in the US, and there were a lot of countries present. Um, 
and although some of the key ones again were not there, but despite that, <clears throat> they were trying to uh, focus on the need for more uh, nuclear security. But there's a strange contradiction in this whole discourse as well. On the one hand, they organize it to try and see how they can stop North Korea from becoming active as a nuclear power. Um, but in the meantime, you find that the U.S. and Russia, which are the two biggest um, nuclear arms producers, they, in fact, they produce more than, I think, together more than 80% or even more of all the nuclear arms in the world. And they continue to modernize their, their arsenal. So while they're calling on others to cut down, they are still improving their own stockpile. And... Um, even though they claim that they've reduced the number of warheads and things like that. But those are things that are out of date anyway. So there's a lot of um, hypocrisy and uh, and contradiction in that whole discussion. And Mm. we ourselves have been part of a whole movement to to get the nuclear weapons banned. And more and more countries are coming on board for that. And there have been a lot of discussions lately and meetings um, where um, many countries are now saying we have to go ahead and produce a treaty that will ban all nuclear weapons. And of course, all the, the big nuclear powers, they're all resisting this. They're all insisting that it would be irresponsible, etc., etc., to do that. But what these hundreds of other countries are saying is that the irresponsible thing is to continue to even stockpile them because just having them represents huge dangers. And if you try and transport them, uh, there's huge dangers on the road, or on the sea, or wherever it is. And <clears throat> there have been many mistakes made uh, where, where there have been near miss uh, explosions and things like that, and uh, or detonations, I should say. And that's why many countries are saying we've got to get rid of nuclear weapons altogether. And just in the last month as well, the the Marshall Islands, which were the victims of nuclear testing um, way back in the 50s, they issued a... They brought a case in the International Criminal Court against all the nuclear powers who are stocking weapons because they say they've been the victims of this and they continue, these powers continue to be a danger to the whole world. Now, I, we, haven't, we haven't heard the result of that case that was brought against all the nuclear powers in the International Criminal Court in The Hague, mm-hmm. and, not, and not many people are expecting them to succeed, but it, the one, it, it, what it represents is that um, more and more energy and more and more the voice of those who are calling for the the, the ban on nuclear weapons is growing and we hope that we and we need to be part of that that movement so mm. that's a big thing that's been happening lately and of course this is all linked to the whole question of disarmament at a broader level and uh, we dominicans are also wanting to engage with that in a bigger way the holy see the church is really involved in, uh, in trying to promote disarmament. And there are lots of uh, different uh, 
meetings going on at different aspects of, of this armament, and you're talking about um, conventional weapons, uh, biological weapons, uh, etc. And there are lots of those sorts of discussions going on all the time to monitor some of the treaties that have already been made about that and to see how we can improve the armament process. But I think one of the biggest things to focus on is the Arms Trade Treaty, which was signed um, last year, uh, or the year before, um, and which was a big step in a way towards uh, regulating the traffic of arms, but the more and more we hear about it, the more we realize that it was a very weak treaty, Mm. and all the big arms producers continue to produce arms at a rapid rate. And we know that as soon as they produce, then they have to be sold. So the arms trade hasn't been regulated very much. So that's a big issue that we are wanting to engage with as well. Yeah. I mean, it's also a question of the economy of certain of these big countries. I mean, some of these big countries, as you mentioned, actually depend on uh, on the production of arms, the selling of arms. So I think that's a it's a battle that uh, will still carry on for some time, but we hope to see some major changes in the near future. Well, you know, that argument, uh, the same could be said about all the other big uh, industries in the world. You know, the three biggest industries are arms is the biggest, the second one is human trafficking, mm-hmm. and the third one is drugs. That's right. And all of them are evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're all business around evil. So, you know, we know, I know you're absolutely right about the fact that they say we can't afford to lose jobs, things like that, but if we, if we build our economy on lethal and on destructive um, products, we we have to push for the elimination of them, and that's the case in South Africa too. I think there should be a big movement, and the church should be involved in calling for the closing down of our arms production companies and things like that, Danel, etc. Because we are we are wreaking havoc with those. I and mean, just recently, for example, President Zuma went to Saudi Arabia to promote uh, a new bullet-making factory there, and that's scandalous because Saudi Arabia is a country that's at the heart of so many of the these terrible arms trade operations and South Africa is now in bed with them and that's as is France and the United States and the UK and that's why I say there's so many contradictions in the whole in this whole thing. That's right. These countries that are proposed that are claiming to be the proponents of human rights, mm-hmm. they are producing arms, which are some of the biggest destroyers of the human rights of people. And we need to be aware of that and and be mobilizing South Africans and people all over the world to engage and get our government to stop producing arms, stop selling them to these road countries, and stop engaging in such a trade. And that was part two of my interview with Father Mike Deep OP, the permanent delegate of the Dominican Order to the United Nations and the Order's general promoter of justice and peace, talking to us about some of the highlights during the month of April at the United Nations. Father Mike Deep will be back again next week at the same time as he continues to outline some of the other major debates that took place at the UN. Time now for some health matters. 
Introducing his department's 2016 budget vote in Parliament on Tuesday, Health Minister Aaron Mutsualedi called for solidarity as they tried to reduce the cost of cancer medicine the same way the cost of ARVs was made affordable in the country. Motsualedi said in an effort to tackle the problem globally, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has established a high-level panel on access to medicines and South Africa is represented on the structure. South Africa took a major step towards protecting girls from cervical cancer when government launched its HPV campaign after striking a deal with drug producers. The health minister is now looking at doing the same with regards to breast cancer. He has initiated talks with a major pharmaceutical company in an attempt to bring down the costs of this treatment, which costs 500,000 rands for a year's treatment. So to get some comments with regards to the 2016th health budget vote, I spoke to Elvira Roberg, the spokesperson for Kathka. Yes, no, we are very excited that um, they're going to be looking at bringing down the uh, cost of cancer treatment. Um, it's really, really great for healthcare in South Africa in general. We are delighted that the government is moving towards the test and treat in September this year, which means that a person's CD4 count will no longer be um, the criteria to go on to ARVs, which is, of course, in line with the World Health Organization's new guidelines, which was released in December. But uh, we do know that this has meant, you know, obviously that there's going to be a big increase in the health budget. Um, and this campaign um, will cost about $3 billion but as you mentioned earlier, it will include providing pre-exposure, which is also fantastic. There was also a mention of mobile clinics, which is something that Kathka has been doing already. Um, yes. What were your reactions to that? No, we think it's absolutely fantastic. You know, there's such a big need for mobile clinics to go into the rural areas. There are so many, you know, ill people in the rural areas that don't have either the means of transport, they don't have the funds to get transport to clinics, or they just are too ill to get to a clinic. So having mobile clinics is definitely a way forward to just reaching all those people that currently don't have access to any health care uh, whatsoever. Seeing that the health minister has mentioned the three main conditions, we're talking about HIV and AIDS, cancer, as well as TB. Do you think that there's anything else that he, he could have added to make the health, uh, health sector uh, better? We think it's fantastic that they've identified that we do have these three major um, diseases in this country that are curable, that there is something that we can do about it. Um, and that people are dying for no reason. I mean, the fact that, you know, he said that, you know, for example, TB is too high of a burden for the nation to carry in economic and social terms is fantastic because the government is often not this blunt. So the fact that they are um, acknowledging that we've got a problem and they're going to sort it out and they've increased the budget, we think is absolutely amazing. And if we can work on these three major killers, I think, you know, everything else will then fall in place and they will be able to continue with all the other diseases.
Now to some things are uh, based on uh, the health minister's budget speech. Do you see this as a positive step with regards to all the other NGOs, all the other organizations that do work hand in hand with the health department? Definitely, most definitely. So whereas before there was problems with with uh, drugs and with treatment, you know, now that the government's budget is bigger, there'll be more access to these. There'll be more, you know, especially like we mentioned last time, the CASCA, you know, the government is focusing, um, sorry, on cancer. The government will be focusing on, on cancer, um, you know, as one of the, the big things in their speech. Um, and with them being able to supply, you know, treatment and um, all of that too, you know, the rural areas to, to organizations like CASCA and all the other organizations out there, it'll definitely um, help the CASCA other organizations as well as um, even the government hospitals to get treatment, to get people better again. Because there's no reason why in 2016, you know, people should be dying of TB, which is preventable, it's curable, you know. So with them increasing their budget, it's definitely helping everybody. My thanks goes there once again to Elvira Roberg, the liaison officer of Kafka. This has been a Wednesday edition of the Catholic View. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back again tomorrow at the same time. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao.